So glad that everyone could join us this evening. We're here on our evening time again, and of course we'll be not here tomorrow evening, but we will have another meeting tomorrow night. It will be at the, well, the location they just said. I'm still learning my way around the campus, so I pretty much just go wherever people point me at this point. But if you can find your way there, please do so and bring a friend. We're going to continue our study. And tonight our message is a continuation of last night's and the previous, or yesterday's and the previous night's, whatever. And... Uh, it's entitled, A Slinky Down the Stairs. And that may not make sense to you right now, but hopefully by the end of tonight's message, not only will the title make sense, but the message from God's Word will be clear to everyone and we can see exactly what God is doing and closer and closer to understanding what our role is in His plan. But before we dive into a study of God's Word, we always need to begin with a word of prayer. So if you would, please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful evening outside. But thank you for giving us this few moments away from the rest of our hectic schedule to spend inside in this place this evening. And Lord, I especially want to pray that you will make your word clear tonight. I've done my best to prepare, but only your Holy Spirit can truly write words on our hearts. And so Lord, now I'd ask that people would have sharp minds to think clearly and soft hearts to receive what you have to give. Lord, be our teacher tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A slinky down the stairs. Now I'm going to review a few texts that we covered in our previous message to catch us up to speed because we're walking through a sequence of events and a process that needs to be understood in a particular flow. And so picking up where we were in the stream, we go to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, you recall we looked at this before, but... He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from what? From the beginning. Not only has the devil sinned from the beginning, but the devil is the beginning of sin. If you recall, where did iniquity come from? Within him, in his heart, right? All of these different rebellious uh, ruminations started to build up and foment within him until they became jealousy and even anger and violence all within but that's where the headwaters of sin have their spring. That's where they emanate from, is from within him. So when it says the devil has sinned from the beginning, he in fact was the beginning of sin. And then it says, for this purpose, the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, was manifested. Now just a quick aside, he was the Son of God before he came to this earth, yes? Yes. So he was the Son of God, but he manifested. He came down here, was made real to us. He was incarnate for one particular purpose, according to this text at least. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And we looked at what those works were. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. John chapter 8, Jesus says so himself. When he spoke to the religious leaders, he said, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of it. So the works that Jesus Christ came to destroy were the works that, he had, that Satan had begun in heaven lying about the character of God, violently opposing God, and given the opportunity, of course, he would kill God, which is exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Thus Jesus would say in John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. 
Now, make a pause there. Many Christians sometimes get confused about this text and say, well, look, the judgment of the world happened 2,000 years ago. But Jesus himself defines what he means by the term judgment of this world right there in the text. So we just keep reading. And I just want to tell you, that's the greatest remedy for any biblical confusion. Just keep reading. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, if you recall, he had already been cast out 4,000 years previous to the statement from the courts of heaven. From his position as covering cherub. But he had not been destroyed. He had merely been removed, cast out. But now Christ says at the cross, he will be cast out. And if you recall our message previously, what casting out was that talking about? Casting out of the sympathies of the heavenly beings, right? And he explains he's talking about his death when he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So when Jesus talked about his death on the cross, he said that will be a casting out of Satan. And for this purpose he came. Which is exactly what we read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Now if you recall in verses 7 through 9, that's where we read about there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought and there was no... You remember this. And that's in verses 7 through 9 when Satan was cast from the courts of heaven. But now in verse 10 we read, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation... Notice that salvation was not offered when Satan was cast out. It wasn't provided for by the cross. But now at the cross, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Okay? So he was cast out of heaven then he was cast down at the cross which brings us to this point. If this was the purpose Jesus Christ came to this earth was to destroy the works of the devil... And if he accomplished that purpose at the cross of Calvary, any logical thinking person would come up with this question. Then why didn't God kill Satan at Calvary? If the whole purpose for Jesus' coming, according to at least that one text, was to destroy the works of the devil, and he did so by demonstrating his own character and the character of his enemy at the cross... So that all the unfallen, all those who, remember Isaiah and Ezekiel, all who knew you, would gaze at you and consider you, they've had their chance to see what was in his heart all along. At Calvary, imagine the scene from heaven's perspective looking at Calvary. Could not God the Father then turn around to all the intelligences of the heavens, the sons of God, the, the angel host, the cherubim, the seraphim, Gabriel himself, and say, Gabriel... Do you now see what I had seen in his heart all along? And he'll say, yes. Do I have, not that I needed your permission, but do you see the wisdom? Do you concur? Do you ratify the sentence that Lucifer, though he may have been your friend, now needs to be ended? That if given the opportunity, he would take everything. Jesus Christ demonstrated he's willing to give everything, including the life of God himself, if it were necessary to save humanity. Where on the other hand, Satan would take everything, including the life of God itself, were it possible. 
that he can't be tolerated, he can't be put up, it has to be ended. Do you see that? And at Calvary, Gabriel, all the angel hosts, all those sons of God, would look at God the Father and say, yes. I see why the wisdom. I understand your plan. So then my question is, why are we here 2,000 years later and it hasn't happened? What's the holdup? Why is Satan still living when so many of us are doing dying in a very awful way? The best answer, and I think the correct answer, is this. It's not merely the plan of destruction. It's the plan of redemption. God's plan involves more than merely destroying Satan. It also involves saving sinners from out from under Satan. Okay? Now that's a big difference. That's a big difference. Let's explore this a little bit. In fact, this whole evening we're going to be looking at this concept. Notice in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Now we had talked about for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, but that was not the sole purpose Jesus Christ came, was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, he accomplished that on the cross, but there was more in his plan than merely the destruction of Satan. The redemption of man was on his mind as well. So it says here, the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking of himself, the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. So he said, yes, I want to get rid of Satan. I want to get him off of everyone's back. And then from out from under him, I want to redeem, buy back, save some of his captives, any of them who want, by the way. Now that's a big plan. Thus again we see in Matthew chapter 13, what I believe is part of the answer to the riddle, if Christ defeated Satan at the cross, as we've all heard all of our lives, then why 2,000 years later are we still here? Look again at our parable we've been building this off of. So the servant of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? And remember, these servants are the angels asking God these questions. Where did this evil come from? And God has clearly demonstrated it was not his fault. It came from within Lucifer. Lucifer has now showed his cards, revealed himself as a liar or murderer. So when God, Jesus says, an enemy has done this, then the servants say to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them up? All right, we trust you. Now let's rid the universe or your field, the world, of all the wickedness, of all the evil people, of all the sinners. Let's just get rid of them. But what was his answer? No. Why keep the tares around? Here's his explanation. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the what? The wheat with them. We spoke about this earlier, but if, the, if, if Jesus Christ had unleashed his reaper angels on the earth, or in this you know, parable, the servants of the owner went into that field and started, as soon as they saw evidence that there's wickedness here, and those tares, they would start, sure, they'd clean the field, but what would they also do at the same time? They'd uproot the wheat. God's plan is not merely the destruction of the world and everyone in it. He wants to save wheat from it. Okay? So the only way, well, he continues, let both grow together until when? The harvest. Now, clearly, this 
God's toleration of evil is not eternal. Amen? Amen? There is a day coming. He called it the harvest in this parable. There is an end in sight. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers. The same group of people who are asking questions, who are willing to go uproot all the tares early on, he says, no, no, no. At this stage, you won't see the difference. But at the harvest, now you can go out. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now think about the radical implications of this teaching. The owner permitted the tares to grow because he cared for the wheat. Do you see that? His rationale for keeping the tares is because he loved the wheat. It was in the wheat's best interest that the tares be allowed to mature. Now you might have to swallow that for a minute. Let it marinate. Let's take it out of the parable and put it into real life. Somehow, it is in the best interest of the redeemed that the rebellious continue for a season. Do you catch that? Somehow, God's continued allowance of evil is in the best interest of those who will be redeemed. That's a deep thought. It's amazing, the teachings of Jesus, little children can go away getting a lesson, and scholars can have their head hurt for a while, (laughs) all from the same thing. And then Jesus said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, and he just moves on. We need to cogitate, meditate on this concept. God's continued allowance of evil is in the best interest of those who will be redeemed. By the way, Desire of Ages, page 761, that beautiful commentary on the life of Christ. Speaking of what happened at the cross event when Jesus Christ, faithful to the very end, gave himself. Notice the comment here. Again, we saw this the other night, but Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. Up until that point, he was still in a political campaign. Vote for me, no vote for me, vote for me. And Christ said, watch this. He saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. Think about, pause right there, put a pen in it. Remember in the parable of Matthew 13? When did the enemy sow his tares in the field? While men slept. They were unaware. They didn't get it. And even after it was planted, they didn't see it. And even if it sprung up, they couldn't tell the difference. They needed to see it for themselves. But now at the cross, they've seen the enemy exposed. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. That's that second casting out. Now, the the paragraph very following, the very next sentence, in fact, Yet, Satan was not then destroyed. And let's see this inspired commentary. Insight. Why? The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. 
So clearly there's something more in the great controversy than simply destroying Satan. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. So Satan's character had been fully revealed, but the whole plan of redemption had not been fully revealed yet. Okay? And notice this. We got this straight from the parable. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Didn't say it would be continued. It must continue until the harvest. Now that is a big concept. But think about it. For the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. She explains. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. When Christ died on the cross, the unfallen universe witnessed the whole thing and they ratified their earlier decision. They're going to stay loyal. Nothing's going to move them. Nothing's going to shake them. Nothing Satan can say will convince them otherwise. They are signed, sealed, delivered, Jesus Christ's. And if it was just destroying Satan, they could have done that right then and there. But imagine God the Father turning to Gabriel and the host. He's like, do you all see why? Yes. And then he says, good. Now let's go to phase two. Now I'm going to bring some of his most loyal subjects, some of his own followers, and bring them right back here. Everybody with me? I mean, we still love you. We still trust you, but we don't see. John chapter 14, one of the most comforting passages in all the scripture, perhaps second only to John 3, 16, is John 14, 1 through 3. You've heard it at every probably funeral. You've probably heard it over and over in your lives, and it's got comfort to millions of people. Let not your heart be troubled. That's a nice, fancy way of saying, calm down. It's going to be all right. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, Levy adds, if it were not so, I would have told you. Because <laughs> I'm the one who tells the truth. But truthfully, verily, assuredly, I say unto you, there are many mansions. Does the text say, in my Father's house there will be many mansions once I go and build them? No. no. When Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, before he ascended into heaven, those mansions were available. Why were there vacancies in heaven? Sure. Satan and his followers had vacated them long ago. And there are vacancies in heaven tonight that God intends to fill with the redeemed from the earth. Amen. So when Jesus goes on to say, I go to prepare a place, he's not physically building the structures. He just said the mansions are there. He's like, I'm trying to make a way so you can come inhabit them. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It's a beautiful promise. It should give us peace of mind. It should give us calm. It should let our hearts not be troubled. 
Jesus loves us. There's room for us there. He's going to pave a way to get us there. And he says, I'm going to come back and take you home. Amen, we say. Of course we say amen. But think about John 14, 1 through 3, as Gabriel hears Jesus say it. He's listening, watching everything Jesus does, and Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. There's vacancies in heaven, and I'm going to come back and take you there. And Gabriel's like, huh? Think about salvation, our salvation, from the angel's perspective. Is it really good news to angels that God plans involves bringing us to live with him? I wish I knew more of your names. I would pick on you right now, but... I only know my own name, but he, if Gabriel says, all right, we're going to take Cameron to Vazier, oh no, God says to Gabriel, we're going to take Cameron to Vazier, and we're going to bring him right back here, and he's going to be in the apartment right next door to you, Gabriel. Uh-uh. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. I mean, no, no. I've been watching him for years. <laughs> Uh-uh, he's going to, you know, the property values, you know, are going to, it's not, mm. By the way, don't they have a legitimate case? If we bring us there, won't we just mess it all up again? They've got a legitimate concern. They fought a war over this. Gabriel and Lucifer, most likely friends. They've watched this contract. They've seen sinners kill Jesus. And now Jesus wants to bring them back to home and clothe them with immortality forever and ever and ever. I firmly believe the angels have some legitimate concerns about God's plan. Now, they're still loyal to him. Amen. Amen. They still trust him. But here's what needs to happen. Angels need to see that we are saved in person and not just on paper. I believe there's too many Christians who have a very superficial, paper, transactionary type of relationship with Jesus Christ. But that application in the life, the transformation. Ah. We just like his pardon. He's going to put pardoned over our name. Look, I, I, wrote him, I wrote his name on paper. Isn't that good enough? No. Does it actually work or is it just theory? They need to see evidence. In fact, just as they needed to see why Satan should die, it took him 4,000 years, by the way, for that last link of sympathy to be broken. Angels need to see why any of us should live. The destruction of Satan, they're already good with. The redemption of mankind, mmm. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed, and for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. The angels are watching. Those sons of God who've been witness to this whole controversy, 
are gazing and considering not Lucifer now, but his followers. Can any of them actually switch teams? Will they be, I love this old Adventist phrase, safe to save? Or if we let them in, is it just going to start all over again? The Apostle Paul, I believe, had this in mind several times in his writing. He would talk about almost, you ever, be, you ever just get the sense that you're being watched? I'm not trying to creep you out, but you ever alone in a room, you know? You ever alone in the room and all of a sudden, like, hmm, the hair, so there's some, hmm. Right? You look over, it's just a dog. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul wrote and he viewed life from the perspective of a man being observed. Listen to this. He says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world. And he defines the world as both angels and men. Now, of course, it makes sense to say, oh, you're bearing the name of Jesus all the world. Everywhere you go to preach, whether it's in Asia or Africa or, or, or Europe, wherever it is, Paul, they're all going to be watching you and seeing that you measure up to your, especially given your former life. He says, no, 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 I believe that God has made us a spectacle, not just to men, but the whole universe, to angels as well. That word spectacle, the Greek for that is theatron, like a theater. Perhaps Shakespeare was right. All the world's a stage. And the universe is watching. In fact, watch what he says. The Apostle Paul continues this in Ephesians chapter 3. He's speaking about his own calling to ministry. And if you were to ask most people who were familiar at all with the Scriptures, what was the Apostle Paul's job description? What was his responsibility God gave him? And you'd say it was the preacher of the gospel to what group? The Gentiles, right? And he admits such a thing. Look at verse 8. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, where we might put a period and say, yes, that's what your job is, he continues to say, and, or in addition to merely preaching to the world, the Gentile world, he says, and, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What it's like to be part of this mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. So there's a mystery. There's some wisdom. There's a plan that God has had in his mind for ages. And now that Christ has died on the cross, not only through the message of the Christ, but also the people of Christ demonstrate something. In fact, he makes it explicit. Again, that to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now watch close, carefully at verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, manifold being something with a lot of moving parts, it's complicated, right? The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, 
Peter would say of Paul's writings, he sometimes writes things that are hard to understand. But we're here on a university campus tonight. You're the cream of the intellectual crop. You can handle a little Apostle Paul. You remember diagramming sentences when you were a kid? Right? Subject and, you know, noun, verb, agreement, all those things. Watch this. Now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. First of all, God wants his wisdom known to whom? To the principalities and powers, and where do they live? In the heavenly places. So let's just stop right there. Hopefully a very easy question. Where does God live? In heavenly places. Amen. Where do the angels live? places. These principalities and powers, maybe the sons of God, maybe the angel hosts, maybe the covering chairs, maybe the cherubim and seraphim, maybe a Gabriel, all the angel terms we know of, all the intelligences of heaven live there in the heavenly realms where God himself dwells. And God has a mystery. He has a manifold wisdom. He has a plan, an idea that he wants to communicate to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. When he himself is there in heavenly places. So if God has an idea that he wants to communicate to other people living where he lives, wouldn't the simplest and most direct way to convey that message is to be turn around and explain it. Just say it to them. Here is my plan. The end. But that's not what God is doing, according to this text. He is trying to teach it to them by what agency? By the church. God's people here on earth. Remember that concept that sometimes more is needed than merely to proclaim the truth? A proclamation of truth sometimes is not sufficient. What's needed is a demonstration of the truth. Remember when God was going to destroy Lucifer or could have destroyed him the moment iniquity was found in him? If all he did was kill him and then say, don't worry about it, trust me, it was good. Well, we still trust you, but we need to see evidence that it makes sense. And now they've seen all the evidence they need that Lucifer should die. And now God says, now I'm going to bring some of them back here. And he says, don't worry, it'll make sense. And they're saying, we still trust you, but we need to see evidence. So God says, look, I can explain and explain and explain. I could teach it to you, but you need to see it lived out practically. So here, watch my people. God says, look, Gabriel, calm down. Watch Loma Linda. I did that special for you. You're welcome. <laughs> Think about the concept. God intends his people to be the evidence of his wisdom. He wants to be able to look at us and say, I don't have to explain anymore. Look, my plan makes sense. I can actually transform sinners 
into saints. I can make people good. Not just call them good. I can actually make them good. Again, friends, too many people have a superficial understanding of salvation. That as long as I have a declaration that I'm good, as long as he writes my name on a piece of paper, it's a transaction that will get me in. When what God is looking for is a transformation that will fit you in to the society of heaven. It's a much bigger concept. In Luke chapter 10, by the way, we still haven't addressed the slinky down the stairs. We're getting there. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 people to do work in his name. In Luke chapter 9, he had sent out the 12, and now he sends out 70 more also, and they were to do the very ministry that Jesus was doing, which is preaching, teaching, and healing, and casting out demons. And later on in the same passage, they return, and they say, then the 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I have to wonder if that made Jesus a little sad. Like, were you surprised? Like, why the shock and awe? That's why I sent you. Because it would work. But they come back and say, you'll never believe it. All that stuff we did, we were healing and preaching and teaching. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And Jesus' response is a bit of a non sequitur in the context. But he makes this statement. He said, I saw Satan fall like what? Lightning from heaven. So you're talking about casting out demons here. I'm talking about the big picture casting out of Satan altogether. But he says it was like lightning. And usually, at least in my experience, when someone invokes the analogy of lightning, they mean it happened really quickly, right? Like, you know, fast as lightning. But I'm going to offer two reasons why that can't possibly be what Jesus was talking about here. Number one, this is 4,000 years after he was cast out of heaven and he was still menacing, living, being awful and evil when Jesus was talking. He still is today. So now we're at 6,000 years. If that's what quick is, that's a strange application of fast as lightning. Okay? But handily enough, evidence number two is more airtight. Because Satan falling like lightning from heaven is not the only time Jesus mentions someone coming from heaven like lightning. Can anyone think of who the other person that's going to come from heaven like lightning is? Jesus, Jesus himself. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. By the way, this is not a whole lecture on the manner of Christ's coming, but just a quick heads up. If someone has to tell you about it, it's not the real thing. It's like, I heard on CNN that, nope. (laughs) You already know that's not it. The coming of Jesus is going to be visible, it's going to be audible, it's going to be global, and it's going to be not missed by anybody. Okay? So if your friend has to tell you about it, it's not the real thing. Also, or look, he's in the inner rooms. It's like a mysterious, secret, supernatural, secret, 
not going to be a secret. It's not going to be spiritual. It's going to be a literal, audible, visible, global event that no one's going to miss. In fact, he goes on to exclaim, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In this context, is Jesus talking about coming quickly? No. Even though Jesus says, the very closing chapter of the book of Revelation, behold, I come quickly. He repeats it over and over. But in this context, is he using lightning as a metaphor for speed? No. He's using it as a metaphor for what? Visibility. Everyone's going to be able to see, and every eye shall see him. It's not going to be secret. It's not going to be remote. It's going to be universal. Everyone's going to get a chance to see. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about, I believe, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Is that everybody gets a chance to see for themselves. God is eliminating Satan in a way that everyone can see his true character. So that when the end comes, it will truly be an end and not just a pause. When Satan was cast out of heaven originally, it was not a single shot from glory to the grave. Clearly, we're 6,000 years later and he's still going strong. Instead, Satan's fall is ongoing even now, like a slinky down the stairs. How many of you are, I don't want to say old enough. How many of you can recall earlier in your formative years? receiving a slinky as a gift or having the opportunity to play with a slinky, right? Now, some of you, if you're young and raising your hands, you played with, like, the fake slinky. It was, like, plastic and multicolored. It was a, that was junk. I don't, that's not a real, a real slinky has one color, silver, right? Right, it comes in a box like this. Some of you are going back down memory lane right now, right? And you can play with a slinky in only a very few ways. You can sit there and do this in your hand, you know, for, like, a minute, but then you're like, this is boring. I'm done. You can stretch it out and kind of do this with it. But what's going to happen to your slinky? You're going to break it. You're going to bend it. It's going to get all tangled up. It's worthless then. There's one cool thing a slinky can do. And what is that? Go down the stairs. Right? So you put, and you all know this, but come on, just be with me now. You put the slinky at just the right spot. And you give it a little momentum, a little push, a little tug, a little flick. And it will go down to the next step. But if you do it just right, you don't have to go down. The, it wouldn't be that fun if you just slap it each step. You know? <laughs> that would not be a toy. You can do that with any toy, right? But the slinky will carry that momentum, that inertia, down to the next step. And it'll, flip, flip, and it'll walk down the stairs just with the force of that first cast. And it'll go step by step by step. And it won't stop until it's at the very bottom. So the force of the first cast set into motion a string of events that doesn't stop until it's all done. Friends, I believe this is how God is eliminating Satan. Like a slinky down the stairs. Walk with us what we've already learned so far. And you'll notice each step by step. Step one. God saw Lucifer's rebellion and cast him out of heaven. That was the first step. Remember, we had that doxology singing heaven and Jesus saw into the heart of and iniquity was found in him. But he didn't just take the slinky and throw it. 
Because while it would have killed the rebel, it would not have killed the rebellion. In fact, it would have unleashed it. So what Christ does, instead of blotting him out of existence, he simply casts him out of heaven, down to the earth. Also notice that over time now, we're going to come back to this tomorrow, you don't want to miss tomorrow night. Tonight was the night to miss. Tonight stinks compared to tomorrow night. Okay? <laughs> this is how you do evangelistic campaigns. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're, it's too bad you got tonight, because tomorrow night, you know. But in all seriousness, we're building to some pretty cool thoughts. And I, I promise you, tomorrow night is going to open your eyes to some new things. When I first found this out, when I first discovered it, when I first studied this out, I'm not the originator of it. It's not original. I just read or listened to other people. But there are some thoughts tomorrow night you don't want to miss. But that's enough plug for that. That first casting out, that inertia starts going. God sees in his heart. God's the only one who saw it. And it would have been so tempting just to squish it. And the only explanation given, hey, where'd Lucifer go? Oh, don't worry about him, trust me. <laughs> it would have been so tempting. But he's like, no. I have to let both grow together until the harvest. So in step one, he casts him out of the court of heaven, but doesn't blot him out of existence. That's what we saw in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. So the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Handily enough, by the way, each of these four steps is found sequentially in Revelation chapter 12. Seven through nine is step one. Now step two. The loyal angel saw Satan's true character exposed on Calvary's cross, right? And cast him out of their sympathies. That's where Revelation 12, 11, I mean, verse 10 comes along. Then I heard a loud voice say in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. That's what Jesus said. Remember he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's the second step. But then we get to step three. And this is where we're living right now today. Fallen people, through Christ's pardon and power, are reconciled with God. And the plan of salvation can be fulfilled both in its destruction phase, see the reason why, and its redemption phase, see the reason why. And just like the unfallen hosts of heaven finally said, we are done with Satan, every argument. Remember back in Job, they were listening to the arguments? Now they're not listening anymore. Whatever attitude he might assume, he can no longer approach the angels. Say, hey, how about, no. Remember back in the day, we said, no. Dude, we saw you kill Jesus, we're done. We're done. God didn't have to build a wall, he didn't have to build a fence, he didn't have to... Just no one was listening to his lies anymore. Friends, the same thing needs to happen here on earth. God intends for there to be a people on the earth who are no longer sympathetic to Satan's lies anymore. 
who in their hearts don't find what he's selling appealing at all. Now, naturally, we come with a bent towards it, right? So yes, every one of us has sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we need the pardon of Christ to reconcile us, yes? But friends, just the pardon of Christ is not all that he offers. He also offers power so we don't have to fall back again. He can actually call us good and then make us good. That's step three. That's where we're living right here tonight. Friends, I want to broaden your concept of the salvation that Jesus offers. It's not merely a transaction to get you in. It's a transformation to fit you in. So that when Christ takes you home, it's not like going to a foreign place, but it's like stepping into your own living room. This is where I belong. I wasn't born this way and I didn't grow up this way, but through God's grace in my life, he's made me into a citizen of heaven. That's why we're living right here right now. If you notice, by the way, step one had nothing to do with us. That even started before we were here. So we didn't have any role to play in step one. Step two, humanity basically was the mechanism by which Christ died, but it was still the battle between Christ and Satan. And the unfallen angels were the, the tug of war there. It was a battle for the allegiance and loyalty of heavenly beings. That one didn't have much to do with us either. But step three. I believe that Jesus desires to return to this earth more than we desire him to do so. But he doesn't want to come merely to destroy. He wants to come to save. And the question is, do we actually want that? Or are we satisfied with a mere paper transaction, just simply being called good? Are we saying, Lord, tonight, make me good. Build me into a citizen of heaven. I've asked the same question each time, and I'm asking it again tonight. Has tonight's presentation been clear and made sense? Praise the Lord. Now I'm going to ask another question. And we don't have soft music playing. We don't have decision cards or an appeal to come down front, but I am appealing to your heart. Remember on night one, we said, I want to convince by the Holy Spirit's power, convict, but conversion, that's on you. I want you to start thinking prayerfully. Lord, where am I tonight? Is my relationship with you merely on paper or is it in person? Is it a relationship of convenience or is it a genuine commitment? I heard the story once, true story in fact, of someone who wanted to change their wedding vows from the traditional ones, only by one letter. So instead of saying, as long as you both shall live, it would simply read, as long as you both shall love. (laughs) Doesn't that sound nice? It's so poetic. But what security does that offer? That means that this marriage vow is over the minute we fall out of love, whatever that is. Life is very demonstrative. You either have a pulse or you don't. Right? 
through good times, through bad times, for richer, for poorer, for whatever comes along. Friends, is that what our relationship with Jesus Christ is? Are we committed to Jesus Christ? Or are we just conveniently with him while we're around people who like him too? Friends, Christ is looking not for convenience. He's looking for commitment. And I don't know if you've ever made that commitment before. But I want to appeal to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled with God. Don't settle for a superficial paper transaction. Say, Lord, here am I. Make me your servant. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for creating us at all. You didn't have to do that. And you certainly didn't have to come and die in our place when we rebelled against you. But you did it anyway. Lord, we are yours twice over by creation and by redemption. Lord, help us to see the significance of that. And help our commitment to you to be genuine, sincere. Though, of course, we have a proclivity to go the other way, Lord, we need to be changed by your grace and power. Yes, Lord, forgive our past, pardon our failures, but empower us Straighten up our character and build us into citizens of heaven. Lord, everyone in this room is somewhere in their relationship with you. Maybe it's a great, fantastic, ever-growing one, or maybe it's one of convenience or, worse yet, even rebellion. But I want to pray right now that you're going to speak to every heart here. Convince our minds of the truth of your word. Convict our hearts. And Lord... Let, we, let us see yielding to the Holy Spirit's influence that conversion may take place right here at Loma Linda University. Help us to be the evidence that your plan makes sense and that we indeed are safe to save. So Lord, we ask for big things, but we serve a very great God. So thank you in the name of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.